You're listening to the Footprint Coalition's Downstream channel. Today, we're talking about how technology can help make buildings and cities more resilient and more sustainable. Robert and Rachel, please welcome Bram Ferren. As the former president of research and development at Walt Disney Imagineering, Bram Ferren helped to bring movie magic into the real world. Now, as the co-founder and chief creative officer of Applied Minds, Ferren is working on designing and building the future through partnerships and projects with car companies like General Motors, technology companies like Google, defense companies like Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, and manufacturers like Herman Miller, John Deere, and Sony. We brought him on to help us understand the importance of geodesign and its implications for the world. There he is. The man, the beard, the legend. Brand Farron in the flesh. Shocking, isn't it? In our intro and as our subject, as I, I didn't even think I'd heard of this before you and Kropa hipped me to it, uh, geodesign. When I started this journey several years back, I was pointed, and I'll just call him out by name. I called up Ashton Kutcher and I said, hey, listen, I want to talk to you about it. He goes, you don't want to know. Here's the guy you want to call. Anyway... We are friends. You are uh, a mentor of mine. And we also, uh, we just have a good time. But we would be remiss to enter into the arena of a subject like this without going back to the person who co-introduced me to it with Rachel Kropa somewhat recently. And, you know, and again, as usual, the connections with Brand Farron are, are endless. He knows everybody. He connects people. It's one of your great gifts is, I think, your ability to make these associations and connections between so many interesting people. And you introduced us uh, to our next guest, who we will keep secret, um, but we'll probably talk a little bit about his uh, company. So, Rachel... Yeah. I'm too nervous because he casts a long shadow. Would you please ask Bran the first question? Yeah. Well, I think what we're going to try to get to over the course of this is just why embark on geodesign? Like what exactly is the point and why is it urgent that people focus their attention on this? You know, geodesign is a rather new, uh, somewhere at a hybrid between science and art, which is why I think it appeals to me. Uh, it's a tool. It's a methodology. And once you think about it, it's completely obvious, uh, which is why you say, well, why didn't I think of this? And <laughs> I got introduced to it because I was asked to be the keynote on the first conference on geodesign. And that for me was interesting because it occurred to me while accepting, I should probably figure out what it is. You know, this is not necessary to give a speech, but I find sometimes having some familiarity with the topic and the domain is helpful. It and is a great you, speech. Congrats. <laughs> very kind. Um, but I, you know, I was invited uh, basically by a friend whose name you will mention um, in a bit. And uh, he, he I, is an incredibly important figure in an area called GIS, which is geographical information systems, which I'd known about anyone who works in anything having to do with geography or building or land survey or the military or urban plumbing and infrastructure and buildings and insurance, almost everything. So GIS, unlike Google Maps, which is about pictures and the pictures are attractive, interesting. And I think Google Maps has been a wonderful educational tool 
for kids to be able to explore the planet. It's sensational. But it's not about science and data. And the difference between GIS is it's mensurated, meaning the coordinates matter. If you sort of go to the corner of a building, that corner of the building is actually in that place. It's not a photograph of something. It's a representational scheme of where this all is. And that includes plumbing, and that includes land and boundaries and international borders, and almost anything you can think of as how you would refer to geography. Geography is about two things. It's about spatial coordinates, and it's about time. You could call it geotemporality, putting those two things together. Mm -hmm. But GIS is about how do you quantify that, and then how do you have a set of tools which enables you to stack layer upon layer upon layer almost infinitely. So there's no theoretical boundary to it, just practical boundaries. So there are billions of maps in GIS systems at the moment, and there are millions or hundreds of millions literally made every day. And sometimes it's your GPS unit reaching into a GPS database and then reaching into a shopping database or a restaurant database and putting those together. Well, that's a GIS manipulation and it gives you the coordinates and the path to how to get there. So that's fine, but what's the difference between GIS and geodesign? What geodesign does is add to it what's known as modeling and simulation. And modeling simulation is the ability to use com computers, and sometimes it could be a desktop or something in your hand. Other times it can be supercomputers, cloud-based computers, staggering computing power, to basically say there's something I'm interested in looking at, show me what that is. And then the bigger notion is, so I can design cities better or our world better and understand the implications of things that either were done at the past that we haven't really figured out yet or that we're going to do in the future. A past example might be you have a city with an industrial site that was leaking toxic effluents for 30 years before anyone realized it big underground tank, it's leaking, it's leaking, leaking. Well, how do you take that? So knowing 500,000 gallons of yak, you know, dripped down into the ground. And, and we can understand the toxicity of this. We can understand, is it water soluble? We can understand technical properties of that liquid that leaked into the ground. So it's used diesel fuel or crankcase oil, or it's a waste product from making pesticides, or it was a mistake. A tank ruptured and broke, and it went down the drain because there wasn't proper containment. Well, where did that drain go and how? And so you take that, the chemical in question, the lethality of that chemical, the permeability, you then take the sand, soils, other things which are known as geotechnical attributes of the foundation or where that tank was. Um, you take underground aquifers because we know there's a stream there and the stream runs in this direction and it flows at this many linear feet per minute or this many you know, acre feet of water or this many things. You take all of these complex things, you let the computer crank on it because you say, well, I care about it five minutes from now or five years or 500 years from now. And as you know, I've always been a long-term advocate of long-term thinking. So, you know, I think we should have for the United States relative to 
ecology, the environment and such, a 250 year plan, right? Mm -hmm. So where do we think we should be or will be? So you can run the model underneath that factory or the entire area or 10 cubic miles and see where that effluent is going to be in 100 years based upon how good your data is in the model, which the simple answer is, well, it may not be perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than nothing, which is what <laughs> we had basically done before that. And then say, okay, well, there's the school and there's the playground, and there is a community which gets its water from well water, and there's a community that doesn't get its drinking water but gets its irrigation water from well water, so it's gonna take this up and pump it and spray it in the playground where the kids play and other stuff like that. Should we be worried about that? Should we understand, is it worth taking radical plans for mitigation because we think in nine years it'll be there. Should we drill some test wells to see if our model is correct and how quickly it's traveling? Or maybe it's traveling faster because the soil turned out to be more permeable than the measurements we had available. So what GeoDesign does, that's an example of looking back, of sort of standing what are the implications to our kids and our mm -hmm. families of what happened in the past. Or you can say, gee, we're planning to put windmills for you know, generation of power and we can put them up on top of the mountain or we can set them out at sea or we can put them in the valley and we can overlay wind data and this can be existing data that's been collected over the years or new data that we decide we have to collect for this purpose. We can put migratory paths of birds we can put model the um, electromagnetic process, properties of the rotor blades and see would it interfere with um, radio transmission into an area. Uh, we can look at failure analysis. Okay, let's say there's a catastrophic failure of a turbine. The speed regulator fails and you can watch these on YouTube. And if you have a high wind and the regulation fails and the blades don't feather properly, it will increase speed to destruction. Well, if it did that, let's calculate the potential trajectories with that much energy into a 300 foot rotor blade. Where might it end up? Is it going to end up in a field somewhere or in the water? Or is it gonna end up in a neighborhood? These would be very different. So. The looking forward is basically saying for a task like urban planning, because let's say you're a city board or council and your job is to license these windmills. Well, wouldn't you like something to go with that sort of says, well, upside and downside, you know, upside is we get rid of, you know, a certain type of hot carbon fuel that we don't wish to burn to generate electricity. And we're anticipating you know, tripling the number of electric cars that are going to be on the grid. And by the way, the grid isn't going to handle it. We had a nice spiff on the grid where this changeover from incandescent lighting to compact fluorescence and then LEDs took a lot of load off the grid for lighting. But the electric cars are doing this. And it's obviously unrealistic to think a grid that was designed to do this plus a little margin that then gained back some headway because energy consumption went down, that you can all of a sudden take all of the energy which is being used by hydrocarbon fuels, which is this, and you can simply drop that same amount of energy need on the power grid and think there isn't gonna be a need for more capacity and distribution. And the distribution affects neighborhoods. You have to run new power lines, the power generation 
you know, not in my backyard, or is it going to be wind, or is it going to be hydro, or is mm -hmm. it going to be nuclear? So you look at all those things together, what geodesign provides is a framework. And I look at it, yes, it's about computation, it's about modeling and SIM, and yes, it's about geodesy and GIS and all of that. But I actually look at it as a creative tool, much like the invention of animation, right? Mm -hmm. Animation all of a sudden said, because of this phenomenology known as persistence of vision, we can sit back and do a series of drawings. And if we change them rapidly enough, they will appear to the eye to be alive. And, you know, I, I may be the first to um, publicly admit this, but when my former company, the Walt Disney Company, um, killed Bambi's mother, Mm. No blood was spilt or lives were lost, but a whole lot of people cried and will continue to cry into the future. Well, speaking of um, of ideas, uh, you are at the HQ of Applied Minds, uh, which I think used to be called Associates and Brand Farron and is now Applied Minds. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of patents, so many things we take for granted, pinch and zoom on smartphones. I mean, some of the things are such high security clearance that even though they've been in use for years, I still hesitate to bring them up. But as your job is to see the future, um, and then I'm going to let uh, Rachel try to get into some rapid fire Q&A with you. How do you see this climate emergency playing out if we begin to get things right. Well, and I'll try not to provide more 47-minute answers to... Oh, I, I live for them, dude. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like a beautiful ride in the country of knowledge. And just to be clear, Associates and Farron was my former company that I sold to the Walt Disney Company when I went along with the office furniture and was there for 10 years, leaving as president of research and development for the company, creative technology. And the new company, Applied Minds, I started with my partner, Danny Hillis, and that was the, right. after yeah. 10 years of um, Disney moving out. And yeah. it's, you know, basically just a collection of really smart, talented people that run across the arts and sciences and writing and aerospace and, and all of that. So what, what we do is come up with solutions. We've just passed, I think, about a thousand patents that have either been awarded or pending to the company in the 20 years we've been around. But the the I think we should be very worried about it. And I think when you're dealing with things that can have um, cataclysmic, definitive, um, societally altering consequences, that the tendency is to dismiss them because you put them in the category of too hard. Well, I, for one, can't do anything about this, and so I'm going to lead my life. Besides, you know, my house will be underwater in 100 years, and I don't really care. You know, that's mm -hmm. one side of it. And the other side is, oh, my God, I have to now get serious about this, and I have to get a car that runs on peanut oil, and I have to start my own peanut farm, and I have to, you know, <laughs> there's a, a continuum of reactions. But God, you read my mind. That's exactly what I was just concerned about. Exactly. But there's probably somewhere else, which is called a sensible response to the problem, which combines some of both of those plus others, but says, well, what is an actionable 
plan that we can put in place that has minimum negative impact on society because you pay a price for all of this stuff. And by the way, no one engineered the internal combustion engine or any of these other things because they wanted to destroy the planet. Mm -hmm. Just as when chlorofluorocarb, fluorocarb, yes, chlorofluorocarbon, CFCs were first developed, Uh, No one thought that this was to kill the ozone layer, and it's only because one, literally one scientist, atmospheric scientist, chemist sitting around said, well, well, that's interesting. There's a great affinity for ozone and chlorine to combine and form this. I wonder what ran some simulation models, did that and all, and said uh, we could lose the ozone layer and uh, radical increase in cancer because of ultraviolet irradiation, a whole bunch of things, and we have to do something about it. Now, that's one of the rather pleasant examples where a whole bunch of other scientists who weren't thinking about it said, holy, this is right, actually, and we need to fix it, and we did, and we radically reduced things, we came up with alternatives, so that's actually a good news plan of what happened, and of course, what's paradoxical is, you know, we have a problem with too much ozone in the cities, pollution-wise, and yet the depletion of the ozone layer, um, (laughs) maybe a fan would help, but from a, a, a practical perspective, we did something about it. Now, when it comes to climate change, this is a much bigger problem. And it's easy for people to be dismissive and say, well, the problem is cows. Turns out cow flatulence is a significant contributor of greenhouse gas. So if you either get rid of the cows or you eat less meat or you do this and all that. And the answer is never that simple right? Because it's a whole bunch of things. And whether it's energy used for transportation, or for heating homes, or for defense, or for civil government. I mean, I don't know what the current um, statistics are. But in the United States, when the first oil shortage happened way back when, I was looking at the statistics then, and you know, something like 40% of the fuel used in the United States went to government. It was either military or the post office or the police department, 40%. I mean, that's not trivial. It also meant if you regulated government, you could actually have a move the needle kind of impact on these sorts of things. So uh, from, from my perspective, there are lots of things you can do, but if it's something where you could get a new condition that it's irreversible, people talk about, you know, we're gonna kill the planet. We're not gonna kill the planet. It's a rock, it's quite durable, it'll last for a long time. Now, human life on the planet and plants and other things, that's another thing, and some life will continue. So if your concern is just a form of life, the planet will be fine, and it's self-correcting, because when enough of us die off, we won't be using so much um, and generating greenhouse gas. So that's the long-term view, why you shouldn't worry. I don't particularly ascribe to that school, and I think we should be worried about it a lot. And it's going to require federal policies, because this is not something that individuals can do on your own. Can individuals do things to make a contribution? Of course they can, and they should. Is that going to move the needle or be sufficient? In no way, shape, or form. It could slow things down slightly. But so the point is, this is a system at a scale that governments have to function at. Mm -hmm. Having people in compliance helps too, but this is principally about regulations, about developing new replacement technologies, which don't cause you to suffer great hardship, but just adapt to a slightly different way of doing things. And so that was the the quick 
quick answer of I'm very worried about it, and I'm worried that uh, we lost significant time and headway recently with the last administration on dealing with these things. And the signs are positive that this administration is actually being more thoughtful about it and thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And so with any luck, we get it under control. So our kids, 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 you know, in Texas are not gonna have waterfront property um, from the West Coast. I mean, the change in sea level and the implications of change in sea level to national boundaries, to where the living centers are in the country, you know, imagine 10 foot higher sea levels. What does that do? What does it do to the national defense? What does it do to the national ecosystem? What does it do to energy production? So these are profound things. Now, let's take the other side just for a moment and say, this is all BS and um, we're wrong. This is just a shift in the cycles of that. Well, majority of atmospheric scientists don't believe that. There are cycles, but they think that the human contribution to this, it's actually a new epoch and should be named a new epoch as mm -hmm. because of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so my view of this is pretty simple. I've got a whole bunch of really smart people running really impressive models, which seem to be well validated to think this is a big problem. I have a handful of other people that think that it's BS and it's overblown. Considering the implications of it, where should society make its bet? And my view is, even if it's wrong, you're going to do no harm by doing it, right? So you might spend a little more money, you might do other things, but you're not going to cause a negative, irreversible thing to happen, which if you do nothing and stay on this, uh, the, the current trend, you might very well have that effect. So reason to me says we should be considering we have ignored it for a long time or had minimal response, this would be a really excellent time to get quite serious about it and see what we can mm -hmm. do. It seems like with geodesign, it's a complex tool for a really complex problem. And the layers that you talk about where there's a variety of different issues that you're trying to solve for, I mean, the only way you can do that is with massive computing power and AI and machine learning and things that can crunch or crank, as you say, a lot of data. I, I would put it a little differently. It's a scalable model. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. the thing which is elegant about geodesign is that, you know, my daughter in her school could use geodesign. It can actually be extremely simple and easy to work with on your laptop computer, meaning mm -hmm. none of that. And you can publish your results in a form that other people with GIS can look at and use. And you can um, use storytelling technology to have it illustrate your area of concern or your suggestion for how to make it better. I think the idea of the role of young people in changing our world um, cannot be overstated because one person figured out the ozone layer issue. Now, would someone else have done that? Well, there are a lot of these problems where, for example, there are only a handful of people at any given moment thinking about it, and only a subset of them that are actually qualified to think about it and make a contribution. But the point is, any one of our kids can be one of those people who actually come up with that insight, which fundamentally changes the trajectory of civilization or addresses one of these fundamental existential problems that if you get wrong, you're going to pay an enormous price for it. Now, there's a big list, right? So we're not paying much attention looking for asteroids that could hit the Earth. 
we don't have a great escape plan at the moment if one does that we can't deflect or otherwise counter. How much time do you want to spend worrying about that? Well, I think some people ought to spend time. How much time should you spend worrying about pandemics? We got a reasonable illustration that if we had spent more time, not just worrying about that, but on a national level executing against that, that we could have in fact had a much better income, uh, outcome with um, a fraction of the loss of life that we've experienced now. My view on all of this is when you're talking about things that have to do with loss of human life, quality of human life, future of civilization, uh, let's, how about erring on the side of being a bit more safe and conservative? Mm -hmm. At the same time, balance that against economic cost because you can't simply afford to spend vast sums of money on any potential problem like asteroid collisions, even though they're real. So I think that's what leadership is about. And in a democracy, that's what the voice of the people are about, are deciding what should we be focusing our time, energy, and money on? And what should we help our kids get inspired about so that they have the potential to make a contribution? Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, uh, A.I. Sai, who was our kind of resident Jarvis, is saying we're getting a lot of uh, incoming requests to premiere Brands Corner. Uh, we're going to let people take a look at just the opener to that because there could be a damn near weekly uh, one-man variety show. I think we would all be the better for it. I know Rachel has a few more questions that we want to make sure we don't miss out on, but mega remediation aside, using all of these uh, the, these tools... Let's say Brand Farron gets to design a major metropolitan city. What are some of the uh, inputs, integers, or outcomes that would make it most meaningful to you? Knowing you don't have to get it perfect, we just want it to be yours. I, I think if you're going to design a city today, first of all, you have to acknowledge that people are different than they were 100 years ago. And whether it's how social media has changed us, how spending how much of your time, you know, looking down versus looking up. Uh, the de definition of the structure of society, borders and boundaries don't exist the way they are. What makes the great cities great is variety and diversity, so that you have uptowns and downtowns, which have very different characters. One of the things that, of course, makes New York City the great livable city it is, is Central Park. Imagine if it were just all buildings and you didn't have Central Park, how different it would be. And so uh, how do you, in the design and the architecture, respect light, respect air? Uh, how do you uh, assume that people actually do have to get around? And whether they decide to ride on a bicycle or they want to take the equivalent of a taxi, which might be autonomous, or they go underground in a subway or other combination, uh, the bigger a city gets, the more important it is that people can move without frustration so that they actually don't have, I mean, in Los Angeles, people, many of them spend much more of their life commuting than they would like to. And that commutation time is generally for most not terribly productive. So if you said, well, you had to spend a lot of time computing, how could you make it protective? How could you make it not just productive, not just protective basically of the environment and at the same time of the life and welfare of the people in it, 
but how could you make it something that's productive relative to their life, their career, their family, their social circles, et cetera? So I think you really have to think through the human experience, what it is now, what you don't like about it, what it is you can imagine to make better. How do you incorporate diversity so you do the opposite of standardizing the architecture? At the same time, you can do it algorithmically. So for example, there was an algorithmic choice made in Times Square that if you're gonna put a new building in, this is 25 years ago, um, Jules Fisher and Paul Marantz's company, uh, basically said, well, you have to have three bands and you have to have electric signs here and lights here and noise. It, so it basically <laughs> said, the opposite of what you do in a residential community, what makes Broadway, Broadway? And how do you add that excitement and that presence of it? And how does it make Times Square great? And how does it, you know, for the millennial or for New Year's? So. I think it's incorporating diversity. So there are areas that people like because they're small and quiet and they're low buildings, brownstones, townhouses. There are megastructures for people who think a megastructure is useful, but you design the megastructure so it doesn't make a shadow on the gardens that uh, you decide are part of a civilized experience. You learn from the great cities. What are the cities that people love and why? because it's perfectly okay to steal ideas that work. And how do you capture that? And at the same time, how do you take fundamentally enabling new technologies like autonomous vehicles, which I think will have a profound impact? How do you take what our understanding is of air and circulation and wind, and now we can model the winds in cities so that rather than putting in a Hancock building, which when I was at MIT, it was famous because it was boarded up with plywood because the windows kept blowing out. They yeah. got it a little wrong and these giant panes of glass would come sailing down to ground, which was exciting for the people on the ground. So, you know, it, you get things wrong, you make mistakes. The great cities, if you get the structure correct, the architecture, and I mean that not in the sense of architecture about buildings, but architecture about the greater scheme mm -hmm. of how as a system the city works, and it's responsive to the people in it, if you get it right, it's self-correcting. You make a system that's self-correcting and healing. So if you get something wrong, you already have a process in place for how to correct it, make sure we don't do that again. How do we go back and fix it? Or how do we say, we're gonna leave that incredibly ugly building there. <laughs> These are all choices, but you know, the, the important thing to understand is it's not about guessing right for the entire future and designing everything. Because by definition, you will be designing it to your taste <laughs> and your needs or your understanding of others people's, which will only be partially correct. So how do you make it so that it is scalable? It can get bigger. How do you make it so that it's self-correcting when there are errors, you can fix those. And how do you let it grow organically in such a way that what you end up in the end is a product of the creativity, thinking, experimentation of all of the people that contributed rather than just the grand visionary who sits back and um, makes their grand plan, which may be great. And we see perfect examples of great designs of cities, but at some point that great design isn't quite as great because they never anticipated these three things happening, such as automobiles when you designed Rome or how many other things like that. So I think that that's, if you want to make a great city, you have to allow it to evolve and you just set up the initial conditions, a layout, a way of dealing with infrastructure and let the rest of it take care of itself. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, should we do a couple of these rapid fires? Yes, please. All you, Rach. Okay, are you choosing to travel to cities that you like, or are you choosing to travel into nature? I've heard of a vacation, but I'm not entirely sure that I've ever experienced one. Um, I, you know, my view is I love the great cities. I love civilization. I love great food. I love works of art that I see in the great museums. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the spirit of the city, the vibe in the streets, how it varies from one neighborhood to another, the character. You know, in a city like New Orleans, what are the great moments? What are the tragedies? How has that shaped the people into something unique and special that you get to see resiliency in a way which is incredibly compelling? So for me, I think that is one part of the human experience, which I enjoy. So going and spending time in the great cities, learning from them, mm -hmm. observing them, experiencing them, living them. At the same time, I love exploration. Go out in the middle of nowhere, see if there's some rock you can stand on, admire the view, and ask yourself, has any human ever stood on that rock before? I was thrilled at the context in history provided to me by a photographic project, which perhaps you can research because I do not recall the photographer's name. But it was a project where he went to some of, I'm not sure, all of the um, national parks in the United States, which are one of the great inventions, right? So if you had to say, what's a great invention to make a country, our national park system? So rather than saying, well, there's going to be these three hotels on the Grand Canyon, we're going to build a bridge across it, you know, by just letting some things be and preserving them, an amazing contribution that will last forever. You look at that and you kind of think about, well, you know, what are the implications of these great things and how do you go to a substantive place to reflect? I love going to a place and thinking, well, I'm the only person here. This photographer went to places where photographs were taken, historical photographs, 100-year-old photographs. And he went to exactly the same spot and with exactly the same large format camera and lens, positioned it in exactly the same spot. And one of those images changed my life because it was a, a nice sort of view of a canyon. I don't remember if it was Grand Canyon or Bryce or something. And there was a boulder in the front. And the thing which I noted about the boulder is it had a little rock, about a rock this size that was just sitting on top of it. And in the shot taken 100 years later, exactly the same rock was in that identical position after 100 years. Hmm. When any person could have come, a child could have come along, a bird could have come, you know, yet the, the rock was still there. And that really touched me by looking at, on one level, the effect that we have on our environment and how we interact with it and how we do that and how we damage it. Someone just recently caused terrible damage to some several thousand year old, some of the best petroglyphs in the United mm -hmm. States, vandalism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that you just you say, great. So, you know, who does that? It's a longer story. But that really moved me to see that in 100 years, nothing changed from that spot. You looked yeah. at the image and it's yeah. all exactly the same. And that gives you a sense that in this modern day world where things are moving at the speed of knowledge, that on the other hand, some things actually don't change and are stable. And you can anchor your beliefs emotionally, spiritually, conceptually in both of those worlds. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, equally rapid. Fire. <laughs> Next one. Who's a better well, Who's a better inventor, you or Tony Stark? Uh, well, I, I bow my hat to the greater wisdom. Yeah, geez. <laughs> now, I know Ansel Adams was the guy, but then there was this other fella, Jareb Ortiz, who got to be... I uh, got the dream job with the National Park Service. Anyway, we will go back and make sure we have that. Um, if yeah. you can get those images, because that for me was just a, a, a great, you know, again, I love these ideas that you say, well, why didn't anyone ever think of doing that before? Right. And the fact that once you did it, you actually had a result like that, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So um, just to give us an idea, um, I'm uh, no, no, you first, dear. I'll I'll wrap it up in a little while. No, I was just gonna say what the uh, what the uh, there's there's two more questions here that I thought we might be have interesting answers. But if we want to, if you want to move on to the next section, we can. I don't. You first, okay. my dear. Okay. I I concede. All right. In two sentences, maybe if you can, what's the project you're most proud of? Uh, I can do that in one sentence. The next one. Okay. Good. And what's an invention you wish you'd come up with? I am delighted by many inventions I see and experience. And so it, it's very hard for me. It's sort of like saying, what's your favorite food or what's that? It yeah. sort of depends on your mood and something else. Uh, but, you know, for me, it's the inventions that touch people's lives in a way that change the way they think. So I would ultimately say um, the rocket was probably one of the greatest inventions because uh, what it did was enable the first steps to the most important event, arguably, in the history of civilization, which was leaving this planet and setting a foot on the moon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you can talk about anything you do here, but the idea that you actually did that, that for uh, since the beginning of pre-human people looked at that thing called the moon and did then we actually went there as a first step to mars or as a first step to the other i, I would say um that would have been not a bad contribution mr goddard and you could argue um, some chinese pyrotechnic inventors earlier yeah speaking of photographs if and when you can uh you're such a a collector and the and the range and interest you have in, in collecting things having a lot to do with the history of aerospace and other stuff I think would just be a a beautiful bit of imagery to put but where you and I really connected and I want to say this because you've been instrumental in Rachel and I onboarding John Schulhoff and everything we're doing now with uh, Jonathan Schieber and Emily and Kevin Ford Nate Merritt, everyone on the uh, Psy, um, K, or uh, AI Psy, but also our, our composer, was this idea of having worked in entertainment and deep tech, looking at environmental technology work being done, and trying to find the story, the hook, uh, of how do you tell the story of this. And I, I know, because I've been with you when you're having high-level level meetings, when you're having high-level meetings at Applied Minds, it seems like everybody eventually knows it's going to come down to what's the storytelling behind this difficult project we've been given, and the solution tends to come out of it. So I want to know how, and like you always say, I, I've never been qualified for any job I've wound up uh, getting, but 
It's been a super intuitive uh, life, and yet you seem to have touched um, so many people's lives with the things you've invented and the people that seek your your counsel with these big world problems. Um, why, is it, why does it always seem to come back to how do we reframe, retell, or tell a new story? Well, I would argue that um, contrary to what you may have heard, storytelling is the world's oldest profession. And, you know, it exists as a way to make things memorable. It's how our brain works. We think of a series of images in time and how those images change. That's the most basic definition of the story. We are intrinsically visual thinkers, whether we wish to be or not. So if I say to you, Statue of Liberty, you just got a picture in your head of the Statue of Liberty. Try not to. I say World Trade Center. Try not to think about the World Trade Center. Try not to think about planes flying into it. Try not to think about where you were at that moment in time. So I would argue that storytelling is fundamental to the way our brain works. And if you wish to make ideas compelling and or memorable, if you can't put it in a story form, uh, you're going to be hard pressed to be able to do that. So for me, it's fundamental to communicating compelling, interesting, and hopefully novel ideas. And so I think of it as a very high form of communication. At the same time, you could argue it's one of the lowest forms of communication, meaning most basic, because it's how our brain works. So I think that I agree with you. Anytime you're here, it tends to get down to, well, what's the story and how do we tell that story? But I don't think it's because I have any special hook or insight. I just think it's how people's brains work. And if you want to communicate a complex technical idea, unless you're communicating it to other people who are hyper-specialized professionals in a narrow field, in which case, if you're a physicist, you might start talking equations or you might start doing things that are very different process. But for the ability to communicate a basic or complex idea, storytelling and the tools that go along with it, such as understanding the shared experiences of people so that, you know, Robert, when you're portraying a character, capturing the essence of something which is not said but understood because we at a certain age have all had someone close to us die and so we understand what that feeling is about we've all had a moment of delight or surprise the most scary monsters are the ones that are in the dark that you don't see because a well crafted story allows you to use your individual fear to create for each person their own monster, which um, ultimately is a lot scarier than Fred or Ethel's monster. So to me, it, it is fundamental to how to communicate ideas in a compelling way, make them memorable. And the other technologies that we call storytelling technologies, such as reading, writing, TV, movies, books, etc are all abstractions that just take that fundamental gift of story and telling story from one to the other. And whether it was constructs such as fables or myth or et cetera, Campbell's work, et cetera, that all of that is just about different mechanical forms or different techniques or different constructs or physical technologies 
that are used to illuminate those stories in such a way that they reach a larger audience. When I was at Disney, I you know, told Michael Eisner, and we got to be very good friends over the years, that we need to take the internet very seriously. This was back in 85, because it's going to reach the largest number of people and the language they understand at the lowest cost of any technology invented. So even though at the time I was saying this, it was ugly interfaces and command lines and we were barely up off of um, email as how the internet could be used. It was clear that that's where it had to end up. And therefore we as storytellers, because that was the key enabling technology of the Walt Disney Company um, had better be taking it seriously. It's pretty wild. And, and by the way, I, I just any portion of an hour is never enough time. I think we're probably, tell me if I'm wrong, Rich, we're just going to have to do a subset series of, uh, of brand fair and yeah. interviews and maybe even some folks that you'd like to bring in to dive even deeper on some of the things that mm -hmm. you find interesting. You are our initial onboarded mentor and prime mover in a lot of the uh, things we've been trying to grasp. I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for uh, your time today. I want to thank you for being as patient as Rachel and I are wondering what is the project that Applied Minds and Footprint Coalition are going to lock into that is going to be proof positive of, of the power of these kinds of partnerships. And um, just Godspeed to you. I want to ask you what you're working on, but I know that you have more security clearances than Tony Stark could ever have had. So I will, uh, I will just sign the NDA ahead of time and uh, and not ask. But thank please, you for the rare glimpse into your office too. For people yeah. who won't have the blessing. And please, of if if you supply some pictures just to give us an idea of. Um, of even just what you've acquired on eBay in the last 36 hours, uh, we will find it thrilling. And uh, I just, again, I just want to say thanks. Um, our next guest was introduced to us by you. Uh, our, uh, our closing guest is someone who is actually implementing things that you and our next guest have given some of the framework for her to be able to do. And she is a female founder uh, powerhouse and uh, just an impressive individual. So, you know, your your legacy and the impact of, of your mind is uh, is resonating. And uh, and Rachel and I are really grateful to know you, sir. Privilege is mine. Thank you, Brand. Cheers.